that God, God self didn't abandon us when everybody else abandoned us or made us feel so lonely that God is with us and is a companion with our journey and helps us, doesn't just leave us there, but helps us to work towards healing. On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. Today on In Good Faith, we're talking with the authors of a book with a most intriguing title. Hi, I'm Stephen Cap Perry, host of In Good Faith, in studio with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. Heather, this title of the book, Surviving God, it almost at first sounds like, wow, I'm blaming God for this thing that, that happened, but somehow I made it through. Yeah, the the book title actually has two meanings, and the authors told me about how one is, can you survive God in the way that you've been told he is represented to you? And the other is, God survives with you. Um, so, yeah, it has multiple meanings. So, Surviving God, subtitled this provides some light, a new vision of God through the eyes of sexual abuse survivors. And while we will not be graphic in any way, uh, we want you to know that's the content we're dealing with today. This is written by Reverend Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim, who's a professor of theology at Earlham School of Religion and is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church. And also her co-author is Dr. Susan M. Shaw, who is a professor of women, gender, and sexuality studies at Oregon State University. And I felt like this is such an important work. How do people who've been harmed in this way maintain a relationship with God, especially, and their book is much focused on, especially victims who've been hurt by church leaders. Mm. If the people who are teaching you about God are the people who are also traumatizing you, how do you find God, really? And so for me, I thought, we've got to talk about this because here are earnest people. They don't want to turn away from God. They don't want to walk away from their faith. They want to find a way to heal and become stronger and come closer to God. And there are people who may be telling them, well, everything's God's will. And and so it seems like to preserve their faith and their hope in God, they have to find a different way of approaching or or seeing God. So how did you how did you start with them to get into this? Well, I actually started thanking them. I am myself a sexual abuse survivor, and the book was really, really difficult for me. And I wanted to know, how could you write about these things? It seems so painful. And so we talked about that. Uh, You have to situate yourself in what you're writing. And so doing theology is always contextual. And so we started with the context of the two of us, but because we wanted to bring in other voices, and that's why we reached out to other people as well and talk to other survivors. But it was a hard write. I've, <laughs> I've never written about this stuff like this before. Yeah. And so it, it, it took me a bit to say, oh, am I really going to say these things? And so it, it, was, it was difficult. But I think it needed that kind of honesty for, for it to be authentic. The only way to make it real was to make it personal because it's too difficult to write about it theoretically even though it may be a little easier for the author. But if you're not going to share, I don't think it's going to become 
real to the reader. And for me, I always say when I teach theology, theology is biography and biography is theology. So we come to know who God is from our own stories, our own personal experiences. And many abuse survivors, they compartmentalize or they put it aside so that you don't have to deal with it in order to survive. Uh, but for us trying to write this, we needed to bring that in. And I think it was maybe Susan's idea to ask other people to share their stories. So Susan did a lot of outreach on social media and within our circles and people that we knew. And I think that helped it become a stronger book, including other voices, because this is not just something that happens just to one or two people. It happens too often in our churches, too. We started thinking about this really after Me Too had gained a lot of momentum and Church Too had been moving along and we'd had the Kavanaugh hearings and the Houston Chronicle had started the conversation about abuse among Southern Baptists and that was really picking up steam and that's my tradition, so it, it, that was really personal. And so that was sort of the context to think about what's the role of theology in this and all the theology that you, you hear coming at you within churches is, is the stuff that's coming from higher up. It's coming from predominantly straight white men, and that's part of the problem. And we realized in the midst of all of that that we needed to address that. I think it's one of the biggest theological points that you're going to dismantle is this idea that God wills all things or controls all things. So talk to me about this. Why is this detrimental to abuse victims? Susan and I have a similar background. I grew up in a very conservative, evangelical, is Presbyterian church. But it really taught the theology of this omnipotent God. God is in control of everything, and nothing really happens outside of God's will. I was always taught that. And so when bad things happen, though, that doesn't make any sense. Is God punishing me? Why is this happening if God is in control? And it's not just sexual abuse. There's physical abuse, mental abuse. Maybe someone was murdered, a friend, or your mother has cancer. There are bad things that happen. And to worship or believe or teach or preach about a God that is in control and is in control that your father will die of diabetes or something, it doesn't make sense because we have also experienced this God who is loving, gracious, merciful, forgiving, is with us in our suffering. So we really needed to tackle this theology of a God who wills this. Because as a Christian, I cannot accept that any longer. And, you know, how can we continue to be a Christian if God had willed this abuse upon us and so many people around us and so many silent people who will never share, who are unable to share or don't have a platform to share. And to my surprise, we did a lot of who God is in the book. How we view God really determines how we kind of understand church, understand the world too. I remember so clearly the day that it just dawned on me that if God caused it or willed it or even allowed it, 
that was not a God I could love. There was no lesson so important that that was the only way I could learn it. And so I could not make sense of it. I couldn't resolve it. And so I knew I had to find some other way. And it's interesting because Grace and I both ended up at process theology for a lot of this. And that was the thing that allowed me to stay Christian because it was a way of answering that question. Because in process theology, God is not in control. God is not coercive power, but God is persuasive love who's at work in every particle of the universe. And that gave me that way to answer that question of, no, God couldn't. God certainly didn't cause it, and God couldn't have stopped it. Because if God could have stopped it, I don't love that God. But the God who suffered with me and the God who, who helped me survive it and was with me in surviving, that God I can love. I think for me that that sort of tenet that comes out of this idea of God wills it all is there's something you were supposed to learn. Like you were being taught something that could only be taught in this way is a sub-corollary of that. And that for me is so painful and the idea that that people are carrying that around. And I just I really appreciated that you gave voice to that and, and are taking that apart. I just love this idea of the kaleidoscope image of God. That had never occurred to me, and I found it incredibly helpful. So, Susan, why don't you start us off, explain what that means, and then let's move into how that might help survivors. So one of the things important in intersectional theology is is not to create images of God that are concrete. It's this idea that we take a perfectly good and helpful image— but then we turn it into a concrete reality, which, of course, then no longer reflects what it was, was trying to teach us. And we've done that with, with, with metaphors like Father, you know, and Lord and Master. And so these images have to keep shifting because no one image captures who God is. And the images are really different depending on where you are. And that's one of the things I love about doing intersectional theology is I hear the voices of Korean-American women like Grace. And, you know, I listen to, to Black women, to Indigenous women, and I learn so much from that. And their images of God come from experiences I could never have. And so the only way for me to access those images is by listening to them. And so that's where the idea of the kaleidoscope came, is that our images of God should be constantly shifting. We, we should hold them tentatively, recognizing they, they give us a picture, but it's not the whole picture. And, and recognizing that, that they're all important, but, but none of them is completely full. And that's why we need all of them is because all I can access is my tiny slice of things. And those others enrich me, even if I don't understand them. And then probably the most difficult thing, of course, is we have to hold these things in tension because sometimes those images can be competing and they can be at odds. They can be directly oppositional to one another. And so we have to do what, what um, Vivian May, who writes about intersectionality, calls both and thinking. So that rather than doing either or, uh, the kaleidoscope is both and. And so God can be both this and this, even though they're at odds with one another. And so that keeps us off balance. But that's what we should be. Because if we ever start to think we've got the one right image, then that becomes foundational in the ways that we oppress other people. And it really leaves uh, room for the mystery of God. Because if we just keep saying God is this, 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 
we are almost like creating God in our image. So we have to be very careful about that. This kaleidoscope image of God really shows us that we are finite beings. God is the infinite. With our little brains, we can never imagine the fullness of God. You know, Augustine said, if you think that is God, then that is not God. So we really need to rethink what the church has taught us about God, how we interpret scripture, which biblical passages are we going to use to reinforce this patriarchal image of God and really leave room for reimagining this kind of fluidity, this process, this mystery understanding of God. And if we move in that way, we really encountered this beautiful, loving God that embraces our whole brokenness. It's just a more beautiful and a fuller and a deeper understanding of God. God is the one who suffers and survives along the abused. Our suffering broke God's heart. God works with us. God is a child. God is a loving collaborator in creation of healing, justice, and peace. Those are just four. I think there were many more within the book. Which of these really speaks to each of you? Grace, why don't you start? Is there an image of God that speaks to you? Co-sufferer. So that is really helpful for me because when you're suffering sexual abuse, and then we can also talk in general terms to any kind of abuse, You feel so alone, like you're isolated. You're so scared to open up. You don't want to talk about what had happened to you because you think people may judge you. The church will blame you. Your parents may blame you. Your friends will think something's wrong with you, that you instigated this. So in this aloneness and isolation, The understanding that God is with you, a companion on the journey, that God, God self didn't abandon us when everybody else abandoned us or made us feel so lonely that God is with us and is a companion with our journey and helps us not, doesn't just leave us there, but helps us to work towards healing. This empowerment from God, that God is really in a relationship with us, means so much. And I think that is what really helped me in my own journey towards healing. Because I grew up with a God that said, oh, God willed all these things to happen. And then to move to a God that suffers, co-suffers with us, is in this journey with me, made a world of a difference. And I'm hoping that people will read this um, and understand that God is in their midst, that they can really feel the presence of God as a companion along the journey. As I mentioned, you know, process theology was was what allowed me to stay Christian. And and it's actually, this is even behind what, what Grace was saying, because in process theology, the image of God that meant the most to me was God as the quantum energy of the universe. As I acknowledge in the book, this is kind of a heady thing, but that's where I live is is in my head. You know, uh, what that means is that God is in every particle of the universe. God is the energy that makes up 
the universe. And so that's how God suffers with us, is because God is in these very atoms and and, and subatomic particles that make up our being. And so in that, God experiences what we experience. But God's not passive in that. So God's not controlling it, but God is at work in every particle of the universe calling us to fulfill God's divine intention for us. And so what that means is that God experiences our suffering, and at the same time, God is within the perpetrator calling them to be better than they are. That abuse is not God's divine intention. And so God is calling us always toward justice and love, and yet God doesn't force us to do those things. And God cannot force us. I mean, that's the other thing in process theology is that it's very clear that that it's not that God chooses not to use God's power. It's that God can only do what God can do. And so p- part of what God cannot do is, is force us to do things or force the world to do things, force matter to, to do things. And so that, for me, it solved the problem, one, of did God cause will allow this. It also did what Grace talked about. It meant God suffered with me and was present in this and understands it. And then it also allowed me to say, you know, God doesn't want this. And in fact, God calls us to something else. And then that becomes for me this this energy, this this drive toward making change in the world. And my teaching and all of that is is driven by this belief that we're called to a just and loving world. And I may not see it in my lifetime, but I still believe it's possible that we can make other choices. So that's another thing in process theology is, is the future's open-ended. There's not some something out there that God has predetermined we're moving toward. It's it's open. And so we can choose differently. You know, we don't have to keep repeating these patterns of patriarchy and racism and heterosexism and so on. We, we can be different people. And, and that's what that image helps me work toward. I really appreciated that God as child. I think in my own process of healing, recognizing the holiness of children and also the, the vulnerability. And so when you mention that, like, thinking of God as a child, a holy child who comes but also needs to be protected. I think that was really beautiful for me. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I do want to give credit there because that's, that's Rita Brock's image. And and it just, same thing, it struck me. I thought it was such an apt image of, of vulnerability. And goodness gracious, as a, a people who who claim incarnation, so the, you know, the vulnerability was real because eventually it led Jesus to the cross. It was real. It killed him. Uh, and, and so I think that that, that image is really important, and I appreciated finding that and being able to um, expand on it a little bit in the book. This is In Good Faith. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Stephen Cap Perry, host of In Good Faith. We have another podcast in our BYU radio family of podcasts. It's called The Appleseed. It's a way to take a journey anytime you would like with stories, nationally known storytellers telling everything from folk tales and fairy tales, personal stories, and family tales. It's a great way to get everybody laughing or thinking about some particular topic 
and it almost always leads to conversations in the family. If you hit pause after a story and say, what did you think about that? And boy, what does that remind you of? That is a fun time to get to share each other's stories. And that's what the Appleseed does. Check out the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to In Good Faith, where we're speaking with Reverend Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim and Dr. Susan M. Shaw about their new book, Surviving God. They began to observe the word joy in this book, and then the last chapter is all about surviving with joy. And I just, there are a couple of things from the last chapter that touched me. Susan, you wrote that joy is a gift and a discipline. And then Grace had this phrase of the body as a holy place of miracles. These were two things I found particularly moving. For me, uh, whenever I write a book, I feel like there's a lot of negative things that we're exploring. And I feel we can't just leave it there. It has to be something good out of all this discussion about abuse <laughs> and about surviving. So we somehow landed on joy. And I'm so glad we did because there's not many theological books on joy. So Christianity was born under Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had influenced how we view God, how we view Jesus, this Greco-Roman philosophy. And dualism is so embedded in our Christianity, and it has been for the last 2,000 years, and it's really, really hard to dismantle it. But within that dualism, it's very simple. It just likes to split the world into two. And so we have man and woman, and of course, man is better than woman. We have heaven and earth, and of course, heaven is better than earth, and spirit and body, and of course, spirit is better than our body. So we have this dualistic world. View, You know, nothing on this earth is that important because, as Brian McLaren says, it's all a massive evacuation plan to go to heaven, right? So it doesn't matter. So if you are abused, it doesn't matter. Your body is nothing to you. You know, you just overcome it because it is the kingdom of heaven. But our bodies are important. What happens here on earth is just as important. We saw that in the Exodus story, God cared about them living as enslaved people in Egypt and brought them out of enslavement. God cares about the African Americans who were enslaved, bringing them out of enslavement. God cares about our bodies and how it can be broken by patriarchy and by abuse. So when we're talking about joy, joy really requires us to be fully present, mindful of all the wonders that it holds. You know, we're attentive to our senses, to our physical being, and the people around us, our context. And, you know, we can find joy in our present experiences. And I think that is such a helpful way for us to overcome the experiences, working towards liberation, understanding that there is joy and we don't want to live in this pain and suffering, but we can be liberated and God is with us in this journey and God can help us and bring us joy in this moment. The kinds of things I was thinking about, joy is both gift and discipline. And again, I have to go back to process theology because Process says that, you know, the, the divine intention is enjoyment. And that's not like hedonism, but rather it's exactly what Grace described. It's it's being fully present and aware in the present moment because that is all you have. 
And this is what place where Grace and I disagree, because I think that is all you have. <laughs> and I'm good with that. It, it is gift and that sometimes it just comes upon us. It's like I can be driving along and I'm listening to my tunes and Abba comes on and I'm just overwhelmed with joy, you know, and it is just uh, a moment of time out of time where it's just joyous. But we don't sit around waiting on that. That joy is also something we practice and we do that by teaching ourselves to pay attention to the world around us. And so for me, it's it's trying to be fully present in every moment, aware of my body, aware of what I'm feeling, aware of what I'm experiencing, opening myself up to it. I can like take myself to this place by just thinking about going back to, you know, particles and all that. I mean, the, the, the very particles that make up our bodies have existed since the Big Bang. And so who knows what they've been? I mean, how amazing is that? How can that not just send you shouting hallelujah all your days to know all this goes back to the universe and who knows what else it will become? You know, it'll nourish a little plant or a little animal. It'll become part of the universe in a different way. And for me, that's a kind of immortality and I can live with that. I can have my my, my particles become another star or something like that. You know, when, when the sun expands and takes in the earth and we become part of a, a supernova or something. I, I like that. <laughs> that was Heather Bigley speaking with Reverend Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim and Dr. Susan M. Shaw, the authors together of Surviving God, a new vision of God through the eyes of sexual abuse survivors. I learned a lot in this. And especially, I was curious all the way through about what are the things that help them heal or find what they would consider maybe a more correct understanding of God. This idea that God is not willing horrible things to happen to you, that God is in fact suffering with you. He's next to you as you go through these things. And and I was also, this was a new idea for me, that idea of the kaleidoscope God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Never heard those words before. And we can focus on a God who is a holy child, who is vulnerable, or we can focus on a God who is a caring nurturer, but... But just being able to hold those things in tension and explore who God is further. And that God is bigger than maybe just a glorified grandpa down the street. (laughs) The idea of the kaleidoscope that it's always changing and it's nothing that you can just nail down forever. It and God are beyond what we can take in. Right. And I have to say, I love Susan talking about, you know, for her and her theology at this moment, she's really comfortable with imagining her immortality being returning to the earth and returning to feed something else. Yeah. That to me is is lovely. And the idea that our bodies are important. I mean, they hold our feelings and they're connected to our spirits and that uh, they were talking about it's not spirit good, body bad because things happen to our bodies that affect our spirits. They, they are uh, intrinsically bound to one another. Yeah. And the idea that our bodies are a holy place of miracles, right? Mm. And I think that's that's a healing thing too, is to learn how to be in control of your body and do wonderful, amazing things with your body, right? For some women, that's having children. For some women, that's having a passionate relationship with your spouse. For other people, I mean, it can look like so many different things. But the idea that your body is a place of miracles, that's a wonderful idea to share with someone who's healing. And hopeful that they seem to have come to a place of joy. 
Many thanks to Grace Kim and Susan Shaw for speaking with Heather. This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team includes Leah King, Katerina Martinic, and Josh Orton. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We'd love you to spread the word about In Good Faith. Any episode you listen to, you can easily share with a friend and be sure and leave a comment or review at YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod, on Instagram and Facebook, In Good Faith Podcast. On YouTube, youtube.com slash at in hyphen good hyphen faith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.